This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Sandy Stein. Sandy has been in the retail industry for a long time. He spent 45 years on the store design side. Today, he is a contributor on the retail section of Forbes. Sandy is the author of Retail Schmetail, which came out in 2014, and he runs Retail Speak on LinkedIn. Excited to be joined by him. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. Sandy, you have a, a long history in retail. I'm excited for you to tell the listeners about it. Well, I grew up in a retail family in Milwaukee uh, in uh, the, the 50s. And uh, my father and his identical twin brother were in business their entire lives. And that business started out as a retail store in Milwaukee, which was anything but a brand. Uh, it looked a bit more like a garage sale than an actual uh, retail environment. And they were, as I refer to them, as accidental retailers. They were both uh, merchants and uh, gut uh, marketing guys, never took a marketing class in their life. In fact, neither one of them ever graduated from high school. But they had an idea and they had a, a wherewithal of selling people about anything. And for 10 years, they sold people about anything. And the store that they sold it in was called Jewelry Center uh, on the main drag in Milwaukee, Wisconsin Avenue. And the store sold everything from um, the first Japanese radios to clocks that ran backwards and fake vomit, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, everything that was imaginable that they could get uh, in small quantities because they were never buying uh, great volume, they would buy and they would sell. And it was a curiosity, among other things, uh, in Milwaukee, and it kept uh, two families uh, eating uh, three square meals. And it wasn't until the end of that uh, 10 year endeavor that the twins uh, evolved from uh, accidental retailers to actual brand builders. Uh, when the two of them had a notion about um, a missing piece uh, in Milwaukee retail, in fact, a new niche that didn't really exist almost anywhere. And they developed a concept called Pill and Puff, uh, which was the first discount health and beauty aids uh, store in the upper Midwest. And I was at the time in high school and uh, having taken uh, several drafting classes, uh, found myself <laughs> laying out stores uh, at my bedroom drafting table uh, and becoming <laughs> a key component to what will what would ultimately become a very successful endeavor for the twins. So uh, I kind of got into this whole uh, retail design thing uh, by accident. 
but uh, it uh, enabled me to uh, uh, learn uh, as we were going and uh, become kind of the, the, the passion of my life uh, and ultimately went on to, um, uh, as you said in the intro, a career of uh, 40 plus years of which 34 of those um, I had my own uh, retail design firm in the Twin Cities, uh, doing work first uh, locally and then regionally and nationally for uh, national brands and international brands. And that was kind of uh, uh, my, uh, my career uh, in a nutshell, at least up until uh, I retired about uh, six years ago. What a long history in retail. What a cool story. We're going to bring us to the next part of our show. It's called Clear the Air. Okay. (laughs) Are you ready? I hope so. All right. There's three questions. Question one. When is the last time you tried something for the first time? Almost every day. (laughs) (laughs) What did you try last I am in the process of creating a website, uh, which is something I had never done before. And certainly uh, it's being augmented by the good people at GoDaddy. Uh, and uh, I'd never done that before. <laughs> that is that is very cool. That is very cool. All right. Question two. You ready? Sure. What skill do you not possess that you wish you did? I am not a great people manager. Uh, And uh, you could imagine that that might be an issue when uh, for uh, four decades, uh, I was hiring and uh, trying to manage people in a, a service environment. And uh, my passion is design. I love design. I love working with clients. Uh, I love the interaction. I love living and learning from them. Uh, And uh, my skill set with managing staff was never as good as it could have been, should have been, would have loved it to have been. Wow. What, What an interesting answer. Not one I would have expected. I think the thing that I love the most about that answer is the self-awareness. You're probably better than you think just because you're self-aware of the fact that it's something you had to work on for your long career, especially as you run an organization, right? I don't know how big your organization got, but as it get got bigger, it turns into more of a people management job than it does a design job. Yes, and that uh, that was uh, was an issue. Uh, on average, I think through the thirty uh, some years that we were in uh, that that we were in business, uh, the average was probably only about a half dozen people. But we did okay. get up to uh, twenty plus, and at that point, I did have uh, other partners, and um, it was um, uh, that that was not the most fun times for me. Uh, but did, did you end up getting to a point where some of those things you could delegate, right? When you're an entrepreneur and you start to grow, you can start to delegate the things that aren't your strongest skill sets. 
Absolutely. And I try well, that's to bring in complimentary people who uh, I could delegate. And sometimes that worked really, really well. And other times uh, less well. Sure. <laughs> but that's the challenge with any entrepreneur. And uh, sometimes, you know, a few of us have all of the skills you need for all of the time. And yeah. smart ones are able to find their compliments and uh, you kind of... Um, uh, complete the uh, checks, checks them all the boxes or. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That was a, that was a really interesting answer that I wouldn't have guessed in a million years. So that was insightful. Last question. <laughs> what is one thing most people agree with that you do not? <laughs> <laughs> One thing most people agree with that I do not. There you go. Take that however you want. Flip that. Or I'd almost flip that around. I tend to be a very positive, optimistic person. And um, in this time that we're currently going through, I've uh, heard a lot from a lot of people about uh, how things are uh, not what they should be. And that is certainly the case. But I'm very optimistic about some of the things that we've learned about ourselves, about caring about others, about the importance of community and a lot of other positive things that have come out of COVID that I believe is going to make us as a people better. Uh, and um, uh, so I flipped your question upside down. I don't think you did, because the way I, the way I think about it is. If you think that most people think that it is, you know, business is doomed out there and you're optimistic about the future and the, the power of community is doomed. Well, you, most people agree with this and you don't agree with them. So I don't think you flipped it. I think you answered it perfectly. Good. Well, thanks. <laughs> three. I got. Did I get three right? Uh, there's no right or wrong. And what do I get for that? Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, in 2014, you wrote a book. Let's let's go to your book. Re interesting title, Retail Schmetail. Tell us about what the book is about. Well, the book was um, both um, a memoir and business book. And uh, what I had intended to do with it was uh, become a stepping stone from uh, the career that I had to uh, how I wanted to spend uh, the rest of my uh, uh, indefinite semi-retirement, as I refer to it. Um, and so I, I wanted to go back and look at uh, the both the career path that I had and um, really a hundred years of retail in America and uh, try to um, try to get a, a clue and cues as to things that were happening a hundred years ago and how they ultimately uh, influence things that are happening today and what could be happening tomorrow as everything is kind of being reinvented. And so I used both uh, the experiences that I had uh, 
working with some wonderful clients and some really inspiring uh, retail thought leaders. And I kind of bounced back and forth between those stories and the stories of watching my father and uncle uh, do the things that they were doing. And uh, there's so much of what they did in terms of really focusing on their customer, uh, understanding what brands were, understanding how a good brand should behave, that were uh, seminal in my work, both as a designer and now as a uh, trend forecaster and writer, and uh, that uh, kind of brings it all forward. So the book is both um some funny and um uh i've been told funny amusing stories <laughs> that are related to the family uh that are related to uh my career and also look at some very real trending that has been going on uh over the course of the last century and uh very much uh, give clues and uh, give a, a kind of a roadmap for what's uh, what's happening now and what's going to um, happen uh, going forward. That's an interesting take, this combo family memoir business book. It was also one of the first, I think the first uh, uh, published book that talked about Omnichannel um, that went back to my first writing about it in uh, uh, the late uh, 2000s. Uh, the book st I started writing the book in about uh, 2010, and um, I had already written a couple of articles about this notion of omni-channel. Uh, so we were a little bit early to that wedding, uh, and... Uh, that's part and parcel of some of the things that I was contemplating at the time. I, I like how you say a hundred years and you looked at the past to take a glimpse at the future. And so tell us a bit about what you think is going to, and, and where, and where those indicators are taking us from a trend perspective. Yeah, it's, it's, it's real interesting as we, uh, I've written a lot of articles about the downfall of the department store and uh, the fact that uh, that category, that segment, uh, and some of those great uh, merchants of the early uh, 20th century who really started some of those wonderful uh, stores really had a good sense of what uh, customer experience should be and uh, how to both meet and exceed uh, people's expectations as well as creating a delightful experience. And I think that uh, moving forward, uh, well, first, I think that if you wanted to put the demise of the uh, 20th century department store in a tight capsulation, it would be um, kind of a commoditization of 
the people that bought all of those chains and tried to make them efficient and um, kind of homogenize them down to the uh, most uh, efficient and uh, price uh, uh, most efficient and uh, economical way of putting product in a box uh, they were successful at that, but they lost everything that a lot of those um, first uh, great department store merchants were doing and were thinking about their about their uh, customers. And that's true with Marshall Fields in Chicago. It's true with Dayton's in uh, Minneapolis and almost every one of those other uh, uh, regionally based startup department stores that really at their core had merchants who cared deeply about their customers and really understood what a great customer experience and a lot of great service was about. And um, moving forward and looking at what is becoming the uh, modern day department store, at least in my opinion, uh, you look at a company like Target and everything that they are doing today uh, is kind of commensurate with what those uh, early uh, department store uh, merchants were doing uh, by being um, absolutely fastidiously um, focused on their customer uh, in target speak on their guest, uh, understanding uh, what they need and anticipating what they want even before they know they want it. Uh, and uh, those are things that those uh, stores did back in the day, uh, forgot about uh, in the present day, and uh, uh, retailers like Target are doing uh, in spades that are creating um, incredible uh, returns on investment and incredible uh, customer experiences really interesting perspective a, a lot comes to mind there first thing that comes to mind question do you think that if department stores didn't try to scale and they stayed these local brands that they would be much more successful today they'd still be in business uh i'm i'm absolutely certain of that um you can you can see that, and just in the last week or so, another article from uh, uh, came through on the uh, closing of um, uh, the last Macy's or one of the downtown Macy's in Chicago, and uh, uh, the uh, comments from some of the people who still uh, miss uh, Marshall Fields. Uh, which Macy's had taken over in Chicago sure. and uh, kind of neutralized like all of the other brands that they took over. Those stores had, had uh, private label brands that were focused on their customer. They understood the importance of service. 
they understood that having intelligent people who were didn't have a job but had a career working those floors and developing relationships with their customers was uh, everything in terms of loyalty, in terms of uh, creating a, a wonderful experience and uh, bringing people back in year in and year out. And we identified with those brands almost like they were people, like they were family. And I know that in Minneapolis, when uh, the Dayton's family, which is the founding company of Target, uh, Dayton Hudson, uh, when our Dayton's store um, closed as a result of, of um, Federated and Macy's actually buying them and first converting them to Marshall Fields and then becoming um, uh, Macy's, that it was like uh, important people in the city died. And the commentary after those store closing was not unlike uh, reading obituaries <laughs> that people that identified with the passage of, of, of time, with celebrating weddings and holidays and involved and, and the degree to which that brand, that company was ingrained and part of their uh, their their lives um, spoke to the the passion that the merchants had that created them and the mindfulness that they had in uh, maintaining the, that experience that made them feel like uh, parts of the family in their communities. These these chains would have endured had they remained as they were, in my opinion. Wow. That is something you don't read about often. I, I like the take. If I were to unpack that, is it fair to say that, I'll use one of your words, is it fair to say that when these stores got aggregated, they lost brand identity and then they lost their consumer? Is, it, is that a way to unpack it? Pretty simple. Absolutely, uh, you 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 did a you did a wonderful job of, of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, they lost who they they lost who they were. They lost their connection to their customer, and everything that made that uh, those companies special uh, got uh, kind of homogenized out. You know, one of the organizations who has done a fantastic job of brand aggregation, but enabled the brands to maintain local has been Kroger. Kroger has banners all over the country. They've got, they bought pick and save where, where, you know, in Milwaukee, where you're from, they own the Kroger banner. They own Ralph's on the West coast. They have Harris Teeter in the Southeast yet. They're all branded as they were. They're not converted to Kroger, which is interesting. There's a lot. There, there, there's a school of thought that says to enhance the Kroger brand, you convert those, and that's just branding in a branding class, right? However, there's been this other school of thought that says 
grocery is so local that you shouldn't do that. And, and Kroger hasn't, and they're very successful. They're the largest grocer in the United States. And I think it's an interesting distinction because I hadn't looked at it that they would have in the department stores of Marshall Fields and some of the others you mentioned would have endured had they not given up their brand identity and, and because that was the reason that they lost their consumer. Very interesting and thought-provoking. Thank you for sharing that. I, I guess the, the one thing I, I would say that you mentioned that I'm not sure I totally agree on because is the Target piece. I'm a huge fan of Target. But I think that the one thing I, I think about Target, I, I don't love the name department store because, because when I think of department store, at least in my head, I'm thinking of this fashion-oriented shop. Whereas Target, had, you know, they're really focused on essentials. They have fashion. They're bringing in, they're, they're bringing in more beauty uh, concepts as they've partnered with Ulta and they're doing things like that. But they were built on essentials versus built on fashion. So to me, that is a distinction between them and the traditional department stores, because fashion has been challenged, especially during the pandemic, whereas essential items have uh, been in demand. I can't argue with you uh, in general, in terms of the perception of what a retailer like Target um, is and was at its roots. Uh, that said, um, Target has become, uh, based on just their kind of at least 10 core homegrown brands that have all reached a billion dollars. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, and I know in, I would have never imagined three to five years ago that I would find myself in Target buying most of my clothes. And that has happened. And perhaps in part to the fact that uh, maybe I don't have the same kinds of fashion needs that I have. <laughs> maybe that's the case. I, I, the, way, the way I would characterize it is, I think the difference is Target's done an incredible job. I, I'm enamored by Target. I think they're amazing. I love their app, their omni-channel. I talk about it all the time. I, it's incredible. And they have all these different departments, but they're rooted in the essentials and they ventured into these other categories and they've done a fantastic job with growing these brands, whereas the department stores were rooted in fashion. That's true. It's, that's, that's undeniable. And at the same time, those department stores back in the day, you could buy anything from, you know, uh, the bedroom set to um, uh, electronic equipment that have all since been, uh, you know, realigned with the specialty retailers like, you know, Best Buy and uh, furniture retailers like, uh, RH and Crate and Barrel. And uh, so the, the true department store, uh, which we've really lost track of, is, is a, 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 an entity that's gone. 
because even the few remaining department stores that are barely hanging on, uh, you're not going to buy a bedroom set at in, in all likelihood. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the days of being able to get a craftsman tool at Sears is, uh, you know, a story that somebody will tell their grandchildren about. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. We're going to get to the story in one second. I want to save enough time for that. Before we get there, one last question. If you were to sum up, where's the future of retail going? You were optimistic. Tell me why you're optimistic about the future of retail. I'm optimistic about the future of retail because I think on one hand, it's probably never been a better time for a really well curated and focused niche retailer concept people person <laughs> group to uh to launch retail uh the um uh, the the cost of getting in the game has never been uh so low uh, and there's uh you know there's a whole segment of of future retail that's going to um, come from, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, millennials that want to make a job rather than take a job, and uh, the ability to work with uh, some of the marketplaces like Spotify or, uh, you know, Amazon, any number of other um, uh, marketplaces is, is there. Uh, so launching and creating uh, niches, uh, segments, sectors within sectors is um, uh, going to be a, a very um, uh, strong and fertile area uh, in, in, in the future. Um, and the other reason I'm, I'm very optimistic is that um, we have new needs and we have new opportunities that are, um, you know, confronted, confronting us, you know, every day uh, as we, uh, you know, age, as wellness is becoming something that we're more uh, mindful about, uh, that uh, we're, we've kind of taken control over a lot of things that we used to give control over to doctors and lawyers and people who were, quote unquote, taking care of us who didn't. Well, um, so there's lots of opportunities out there uh, in, uh, for the future of, uh, of retailing uh, as it becomes far more personal and individual. We'll end that piece on that note. That was great. I want to move to the story. You were involved in so many stores opening over the course of your history. You designed so many stores in the country. Tell me about one that's near and dear to your heart. We're going to Chicago, Illinois. What is the, what is the name of the store? I had a, a, a back up a little bit. I had a wonderful relationship with um, uh, the Brunswick brand based out of 
uh, out of uh, Illinois, uh, the the parent company of Brunswick Bowling and Billiards and uh, uh, Life Fitness is a division uh, that they uh, own. Uh, they were um, they are the biggest boat manufacturers with their uh, uh, all of their uh, boating lines. But I had uh, starting in the late nineties, about nineteen ninety nine. I was uh, asked to come and interview uh, with uh, the corporation, uh, with the Brunswick Billiards Corporation, um, uh, based in uh, uh, actually a very small town in, in, in Wisconsin. And um, I was being interviewed f- uh, for uh, a uh, what, what ultimately became a store-in-store concept. They, um, as a as a manufacturer of billiards, uh, they were connected to a whole lot of small independent uh, retailers throughout throughout the country, and uh, their brand was being commoditized in a lot of these um, uh, retail stores by uh, uh, small, often uh, family owned, sometimes multi generational uh, companies that. That would have a Brunswick line and then a number of other uh, lower price lines, and they would often uh, use one to sell the other. Uh, and meanwhile, these uh, beautiful Brunswick products were uh, kind of getting lost in the shuffle. And uh, when I was first being interviewed by um, uh, the then president by the name of John Stransky, um, he asked me what I thought of. Uh, retailers stacking billiard tables on top of one another in order to get more of them into this store. (laughs) And I paused for a minute and I said, you know, I was with my father-in-law this past weekend at a Lexus dealership and I didn't see the Lexi stacked on top of one another. (laughs) And he laughed. That First meeting led to uh, my firm designing a store within store concept where we would take over um, about a third of these retailers, independent retail stores, and I and created a concept that really was um, brand centric and managed the, the experience. Uh, one of the first things that we um, helped Brunswick understand is that they weren't selling a big guy toy thing. They were selling a large piece of furniture and that the decision maker uh, was uh, the better half of the relationship, the woman, and that if they wanted to really get that sale done, that space had to look very much different than it did. It had to be about style. It had to be about um, uh, home decorating. And we created a concept store within store that was very much about style and very much about the various uh, interior design idioms that the uh, tables were being styled to. And we created uh, room settings 
in uh, warehouses, photographed those room settings and created floor to ceiling uh, theatrical scrims that we lit that were really lovely rooms featuring the tables. Wow. Brunswick was selling. How, how big were these? These. The, how big was this location? Four feet wide, 10 feet tall. No, the whole store, the whole store. How big was the... the? These stores, these spaces within the stores were in the area of 1,500 to 2,000 square feet in a store that might have been eight or 10,000 square feet. And so we were controlling the entire brand experience. So everything that the customer would see, feel, and touch within that Brunswick area helped them to uh, make a decision, made the, uh, the, the selling process more user-friendly, uh, began to uh, answer the top questions that a customer might have about choice making within the segment and more than anything really elevated the tables to the beautiful pieces of furniture that they were uh, and it became uh, the go-to place within these stores uh, and every one of the stores that adapted to it really did very very well at some point it was also becoming apparent that the rest of those stores, the other two thirds that Brunswick didn't control, really kind of compromised their brand because they remained looking as badly as they did before we improved a third of them. So let's go back to this one in Chicago for a second. So that store in Chicago was the first store that we controlled where Brunswick was the only brand and where the entire customer experience, including products that were not specific Brunswick design, like the bars, bar stools, gifts for uh, homes, gifts for people that were uh, going to a uh, uh, other, other accessories that related to entertainment, home entertainment, uh, the home game room. We created a concept around that that was as well branded and as uh, brand centric to the Brunswick brand as the store within store concept was. What made this particularly interesting and fun for me is the idea of the pure branded Brunswick home and billiard was one that I brought to the president after we had done the, the store and store concept. And while he thought the idea was a good one, he didn't think he could sell it to corporate. And I took it upon myself and my staff over the course of a year to write a business plan do the due diligence in terms of numbers and in terms of, of uh, product SKUs and in terms of the entire customer experience 
and presented him with a package that he could take to the chairman at the time of Brunswick and sell the concept. That got the project funded. That enabled us to open the first Brunswick branded complete experience called at the time Brunswick Home and Billiard in Chicago, Illinois. What, what time period was this? When was this? Uh, this was the first, the, the, the store opened in uh, 2003. Uh, we started talking about it in 2001. One of the seminal meetings that took place uh, between myself and John Stransky and a gentleman by the name of Brent Hutton, who I brought in to kind of run uh, the concept, uh, took place on 9-11. Wow. In fact, we were, uh, Brent was coming from uh, Indiana. I was coming from uh, the Twin Cities and I was flying into uh, Midway. And as the plane was taxing, I opened my phone. Brent said, our, our plans may have changed. The towers in New York were just hit by an airplane. By the time I got off that plane, I saw what would, would never want to be seen again, all these people huddling around the uh, video monitors in uh, terror, watching uh, the world change. Uh, but we found the last rental car out of, uh, out of Midway, drove to uh, uh, the Brunswick, a corporation and had uh, a meeting talking about how we were going to uh, uh, put this concept together. And within about uh, a year, uh, the first store opened. Thank you for sharing. I want to make sure that we, the listeners understand what this store is. So Brunswick Home and Billiard is, a, is about a 10,000 square foot store with mini stores inside, all centered around the entertainment of the home, more specifically billiards. Each one of these little stores is a separate brand. The, the stores were uh, uh, one single brand, and it was all and it was all Brunswick, but they were divided into the billiards and into other home furnishings related to entertainment, and they included non-Brunswick product that was selected and curated and displayed in ways that we believed were uh, best in category uh, display. And that way we were controlling the customer experience. And um, as I had long said to most of my uh, retail clients, um, controlling or, or, or utilizing design to control the bottom line that design is about selling and is about empowering customers to understand uh, the choice making and to yield a predictable outcome when the customer visits uh, the store I, I love that line using design to control the bottom line that is a great line one of the things, one of my biggest takeaway from this was just seeing through the vision, the grit and determination 
I don't hear many design firms putting this entire package together that you you did. You were part real estate broker, part re- corporate real estate professional, part designer, part, part analyst, all in one in an effort to try to get this concept launched. And without that, we might not have had that store in Chicago. And that is a pretty cool story. And thank you for sharing that. And thank you for putting it in such a nice way. (laughs) (laughs) Is the store still around today? It is not. It is not. Uh, Regrettably, things change different. uh, uh, It it served um, multiple purposes. And in fact, there were were, uh, many more of them. Uh, that uh, that that opened uh, around the country, um, and they immediately became the best uh, uh, generating stores for Brunswick. Um, as uh, new heads of divisions come and go, uh, different emphases, different things become emphasized. Money becomes available in different places, and you know the drill. Uh, sure. But uh, that was uh, uh, it was a 10 year relationship for myself and my firm with the company. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of great successes uh, with them. And it ultimately opened the door to us, us being the firm, to be working in other Brunswick divisions, including uh, bowling and uh, life fitness. Fantastic. Uh- Last part of the show, it's called Retail Wisdom. <laughs> Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> All right. Three questions. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, Conrans. Conrans. I don't remember them. What were they? And was a... Um, Boy, a merchant out of uh, Great Britain and um, opened uh, um, uh, many, many stores, was ultimately bought out by uh, Ikea. But back in the day, they were um, uh, a very design-focused New York uh, retailer of furniture and uh, furnishing accessories. And it was um, as close to we as close as we might have to uh, Crate and Barrel as an example, but um, uh, Conrad's was um, uh, was a, a store that I would take a trip to New York just to uh, uh, just just to uh, uh, to visit. Uh, and, um, uh, it's long gone. (laughs) Second question. What is the last item over $20 that you purchased in a store? The last item over $20 that I purchased in a store was a furnace humidifier. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Still trying to find a plumber to install for under eight hundred dollars. <laughs> only paid one hundred and seventy-five dollars for the humidifier. <laughs> Where did you get that item? Lowe's. All right. 
Last question. Sandy, if you and I went shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? You'd find me in their uh, uh, exercise uh, uh, product area, uh, their um, uh, their homegrown brand, which has uh, done uh, incredibly well. Uh, and um, in fact, I just wrote about uh, this morning when I did a, a piece for uh, uh, for Forbes. Um, uh, that has been a, a, a go-to for me while we were all, you know, in our uh, sweats over the last, uh, last year. Um, well, so <laughs> that's, that's the aisle you would find me in. I guess we wouldn't be getting lost. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Sandy, this was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. It was an honor and a delight to uh, spend some time with you and your, uh, your listeners. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.